Thank you very much for joining us here online. Um, this is the first in a really brilliant series of talks that have been put together with our curatorial team led by Catherine Nolan. And to really explore the meaning and the process and thoughts behind making um, on the sort of eve, if you like, of our contemporary ceramics exhibition here in Wiltshire. Um, more of that anon. Uh, but where better to start than in the three-way conversation which we're going to enjoy this evening uh, with Stephen Dixon, Penny Hay, Dr. Penny Hay, and Annie Warburton. Um, I think very briefly just to introduce them, um, and you will know them, I'm sure, by their works to date, but Annie is now the CEO of Cockpit Arts um, itself. It's an award-winning social enterprise and amongst one of London's leading studios for contemporary design. Uh, Penny Hay is an artist and educator. She's a research fellow for the Centre of Culture and Creative Industry, Reading and Creative Teaching and Learning, and she's senior lecturer in art and education at Bath University. And before that was with the Arts Council, as was Penny. Um, Stephen Dixon, uh, who's a contemporary ceramic artist, is also a professor at the Manchester Metropolitan University, um, and he describes himself as both a satiricist, a writer, writer a lecturer, and a curator. Uh, he's also a great teacher. Um, so, with them in mind, and also Catherine Milner, our curator here, who was the um, formative influence behind the exhibition Beyond the Vessel, which was a touring show of ceramics uh, that put those works very much in the mainstream. What we thought we would do is treat you to a uh, series of thoughts and conversations about the value of imagination uh, in our hands, which really starts with education. It's at education, which is where we're going to focus our conversation and thoughts tonight um, with their expertise uh, to help us understand a bit more, if you like, of what is, has happened, um, what's happened, which perhaps isn't so advantageous, um, and the prospects for the future. So we had in mind uh, seven questions in total, which we're going to ask to our uh, panel here to answer individually in their own way. Um, and then we'll summarize those thoughts together and ask you if you'd like to, to join us in that conversation with your thoughts of your own uh, based on, on what they said to us today. So uh, Steve, Penny, Annie, Catherine, thank you very much for joining us and you all um, for where you are around the world to take part in this conversation here today. Um, I wonder if I um, could, uh, Annie and Penny and Stephen ask, um, these questions in the following order. And um, Penny, purely on the basis that you were into this in, uh, Zoom meeting first, uh, um, I feel you merit the, the opportunity to answer the first question first. And so if I may, in discussion, um, we frankly, I think, need to start with a very appropriate question, given the means that we're communicating tonight. Frankly, in this digital age, um, do we need the handmade at all? Um, hello everyone, it's a pleasure to be here. I've been reflecting on the questions, um, especially in, in relation to the importance of making art, and especially now with COVID, um, and also because of the demise of the arts um, in education, not least because of the focus of um, the government's kind of performance-led agenda. So I think in a digital age, <laughs> what is the value of handmade art? Uh, I think Importantly, our hands and imagination are the radical and necessary solution. I think that was in your brief. 
So the importance of making, thinking through making is our strap line at our university. So the focus on materiality, making meaning. And although the digital space affords different kinds of ways of working, I think uh, it's really important that we focus on the sensory engagement of materials as well. And just quickly, and I'll finish then, but uh, I had a text conversation today with Richard Wentworth and pre-pandemic, I was lucky enough to sit next to him at a seminar who left, and he left an important note on my chair for me to read out in the seminar. He said, it was all about art education. He said to prioritize pleasure and joy, the rewards of curiosity, music, engineering, ingenuity, poetry, film, film theater and painting. And so he talks about his medium as thoughtfulness. And I think that around manifesting our ideas through different materials is so important. I think that's a really well described um, point, Penny. Thank you very much. And I'm going to hold that thought of uh, thinking he's making and also poetry as we turn to, to Stephen and ask him the same question. And for those who just joined us, I'll, I'll read it again. In a digital age, what is the value of the handmade? Um, an appropriate question to ask. Uh, okay, well, as a as a maker myself, you'd expect, <laughs> you'd expect say, it's absolutely crucial and valuable. Um, but I, I, I guess I, I don't come at it in a kind of binary thing that, you know, you, you have hand making here and digital making here. I think um, a lot of con contemporary makers kind of embrace the digital too. Um, and we, we all make make things that involve the digital in, in all sorts of ways. Uh, Michael Eden, who's who's one of our foremost digital ceramic makers, um, spoke about this and he, he said that the digital is just another tool in the maker's toolkit. So it I guess not not to see it as the enemy <laughs> and to kind of embrace it in connection with the handmade. Um, Beyond that, I think I think what 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 is the value? What is the thing about the handmade? It's that connection to to another person, to other humans, uh, to the skill of another person, the, the joy in the skill and the beauty of the handmade object. I think has always been with us and is still with us. Um, feels like this digital age is is a bit like a, a rerun of the machine age, and we're kind of being a bit William Morris and, and reacting against that kind, kind of dominance of the digital. That's um, interesting. Well, I'm going to hold that thought because I think there's a, there's a, um, a rising argument coming there, which I think we can grasp and, and go on with, uh, Stephen, because I, and, and turn that thought to Fanny to see whether uh, you rejoined or, or, or rebut. I mean, it could, could be. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'd be a brave woman to rebut, I think, in this company. Um, but I will, I will join in. So first thing is, of course, the, the very word digital comes from our fingers, you know, our digits. So, you know, we're actually talking about, as Steve is saying, in one way, one and the same. And right now, I would say that the, the, the value of handmade is more vital than ever before, because we are embodied beings. We're, we're physical things, <laughs> we're physical beings in a physical material world. And what the handmade gives to us is 
imagination made real. Um, and it puts us in touch with ourselves when we make. Um, it puts us in touch with each other. It's a way of communicating and in touch with the world around us, um, the materials around us. It, it makes us consider what's around us and where things come from. Um, and I think especially in the context of a year into a global pandemic, um, we've become heightened in our sensitivity to our hands being potentially deadly weapons on the one hand. And then on the other, of course, we're all yearning for touch and for those of us who are or have been completely isolated, perhaps the only expression of touch that we're getting is through objects, through things, through the tactile rather than through other human beings. So um, it's absolutely more important than ever. That's interesting, isn't it? So you you put two points in there, uh, one of which very much sits with uh, Stephen um, and Penny in the sense of the important significance of the hand made as a narrative. Uh, and then also that more physical thing of actually just touch, of knowing that someone's hand has touched something, so that impartation, which I think leads us very uh, well onto the next question. And I, I also do sense that that push-pull of the digital clarifying what the handmade means rather than if you like kind of bucking up against it is possibly a topic we'll come back onto. But the next question um, we've been invited to consider is um, I suppose a very topical one and, and coming out of that physical touch uh, point. What are the problems and what are the solutions uh, to teaching art in a COVID situation? Um, so I think I wondered, Stephen, if we might go back uh, through our order and just maybe you could, as an uh, actor teacher, tell us a bit about how this last year has been for you. Okay. Um, problems have, <laughs> problems <laughs> have been huge. Um, not least rethinking the whole curriculum to be able to deliver it online instead of face to face. Uh, I have to say most of my teaching is at PhD level, so I'm kind of lucky compared to undergraduate teachers who've been really battered by this and have worked absolutely crazy hours to, to get through it and, and deliver uh, the best possible um, educational experience for our students. Um, obvious things like teaching the haptic and, and hand skills are very difficult online. Um, Solutions, uh, we've been doing things like, um, instead of delivering workshops face-to-face, -face, we've been filming them in our own studios and then putting those, posting those films online, which has been a kind of interesting learning curve, particularly for somebody like me, who's not that digitally savvy generally. Um, that's been quite, quite a well-used solution. Um, uh, one of the, I suppose one of the positives that's come out of it has been um, just the, the, the ease of networking and communicating ac across borders and across nations. That seems to have become the norm. Yeah. Um, but, you know, so many more um, uh, conferences digitally. Uh, it's much easier to, to go to a digital conference or a, or, um, a symposium than it is to kind of pitch up somewhere around the world and do that. So, uh, there, there have been positives, but it has been extraordinarily challenging. That's interesting, isn't it? So, it sounds so that question of how to teach the physical handmade, perhaps, uh, and, and Penny may have a view on, but certainly the dialogue of communication, shared ideas, 
and almost like a neural network um, enhanced like we are tonight. Um, Penny, has that been from, from Bath's perspective, the similar, similar thing or no? I teach children and I teach university students. So um, in the context of my oh, work yeah. at the university, it's been completely challenging trying to teach art online, like Steve said. But actually what I've witnessed is that the kind of balance of the challenge has, has brought out some amazing creative solutions. So just a couple of examples I can give you. One was we've been working with Andrew Amundsen, who is the studio manager for um, Olafia, Olafia Eliasson's studio uh, in Berlin. And we've been working with our design students. I can share the film with you after the call. But just being in my study or my studio, um, sharing the kind of possibilities with the students in their living rooms or in their bedrooms or working with their brothers and sisters at their kitchen tables. But the, the ingenuity and the creativity that has come out of that space has been quite extraordinary. And, and a couple of other kind of um, manifestations of that, one has been that our students in the city have then taken over meanwhile spaces, uh, which obviously in lockdown hasn't been possible, but we are about to launch a takeover of empty shops. Um, and also I think nationally there's been an amazing program with the photography movement called Show and Tell, where young people have been able to express their ideas in response to the pandemic um, and have those connections with each other. And, and interestingly, the Zoom box has been a safe space. So I think there are some real kind of um, mirrored kind of situations that are you know, polar opposites, if you like. That's fascinating. Both, both of those thoughts were brilliant, brilliant responses. Um, and also that idea of sort of the empathetic bond, like these kind of the resume area has been a safe space where we've, we've learned this etiquette very well, I think, haven't we? At least uh, um, it's fascinating. Annie, I mean, you more than anyone have had to look after a number of students. You have physical studio spaces there, which uh, I can only imagine. How's that been for you? Okay, so, well, I should say first up, I'm, I'm not in a teaching scenario um, at any level. Um, I am a visiting lecturer at the Royal College of Art and there I've seen student, well, I've, I've been blown away by the resilience and adaptability of students at that master's level um, who, you know, as they were approaching their final, you know, graduation show, they, they switched to, um, to very quickly in terms of where they were located, that they would work with the materials around them. Many of them told me that um, being isolated completely ch changed what and how they were making because they had to just make do with the materials. So it really tested their ingenuity. And of course, and maybe we'll, we'll come on to this later, of course, many of them started to create more hybrid works um, that were physical and digital in in this sense of digital in terms of digital media rather than in terms of digital manufacture 
Um, so I, I think it pushed students in new directions and frankly, hats off to them. I, th I think it's incredible what they've done. In terms of the studios, we've got 150 makers based at two sites. Yeah. Um, we've had record number of applications this year, which really surprised me. We kept the studios open throughout, obviously following all the guidelines and protocols. Um, and I would have predicted that we'd have had a decline in applications, but actually it's been the opposite. People are hungry to be part of a community. Um, and with our makers, we supported them through you know, radically slashing studio costs and so on to make sure that they could be resilient through. Um, and then specifically, just a, a very quick thing on um, education and teaching is that um, I think, thank God for YouTube, right? I think, you know, I have a grown up son, but, um, you know, if I were homeschooling, thinking of all those resources and the online courses that, that um, our makers at Cockpit have been offering have been fantastic for families um, uh, yeah. looking for things for their kids to do and learn. Yeah, I, I think that's such an interesting Point. I mean, as you say, and this is why Stephen's so right about the non-binary approach to the digital, because without this, this, you know, this incredible resource we have at our fingertips, literally. Um, and I always think about creativity really being the obstacle uh, of adversity overcome. And in a way, this has been that very real obstacle and adversity. And we have had incredible creative responses coming out of it, um, which probably wouldn't have manifested unless the, the options were narrowed. And that's really, that's really interesting. Um, I loved hearing about that from Penny. I thought it was fascinating um, about refilling shops. That sounds very, very interesting indeed. Um, so we move on and um, uh, the third question we have is, is actually, um, funny enough, I think links on very well from this. So, so it's, have you noticed um, a change in attitude amongst students or young people in general um, towards art made by the hand over the decades. And um, Annie, I wonder whether that in a way follows on from exactly what you were just describing about, you know, about I mean, let's, let's start with your thoughts on the question and see where we go from there. Okay, um, well, I'll, I'll be brief on this one. Um, I think the first thing is that we know that of all the art forms from the taking part statistics that the Department for Culture, Media and Sport put together, that craft is the most popular of any type of practice, whether music or dance or um, visual art. So uh, to me, that is really interesting in terms of the um, accessibility of making let's say mm. so we you know there's obviously a spectrum in every art form from just having a go to you know world-class excellence um, but there's something about craft that is um, clo you know, perhaps closer to our hearts and um, maybe less daunting to get involved with um, and the second reflection I would have on this question is that um, I think craft is an extraordinary tool 
for intergenerational connection or intercultural connection of curiosity of sharing of a way of communicating and, and partly that's because it's not initially verbal it can be verbal but it's not initially verbal and so it overcomes all the kinds of social awkwardnesses that we have and certainly I've seen that in my own family yeah I a beautiful description of what's so fantastic about art and, and, and making it. And like, thank you, great. So, um, Penny, how, how do you, how do we check this evolution uh, or, or, or note this evolution? From well, perspective? I, I was talking to Catherine at length about this, and I have devoted my professional, well, probably my personal career as well, uh, to this. And you know, obviously, I, this is being filmed, so I have to be fairly cautious in one sense but I personally don't really agree with a national curriculum because I think it hasn't really invited that sense of you know my intention is to engage children and people in that kind of irresistible learning that they want to get up in the morning and go to school and want to find that intrinsic motivation to learn that sense of curiosity um, my PhD was in self-directed inquiry and work, I worked alongside the same group of children for five years and documented their work, um, you know, so that every child had a body of work. And I, and I suppose I teach art because it makes creativity visible, you know, and it, and it shows our human potential. It shows our human creative potential, to borrow a phrase from our lovely uh, patron, Sir Ken Robinson, who sadly died. But the way we learn in and through and about the arts and craft and design and all of the others to imagine possibilities and to explore ideas and express our feelings and thoughts and our personal, social, cultural identities. So, so I suppose my frustration is that the national curriculum, I printed it out to show you, is two pages. I know, well. <laughs> and it doesn't really well you know it's a skeleton it's a structure but what I encourage my students to do is work with the spaces in between and start by eliciting the children and people's ideas and the best question is you know what are your ideas what do you want to do who do you want to work with um, what materials do you need etc uh, etc et and I suppose my frustration is that the arts curriculum all of the arts not just visual art and craft but it's been instrumentalized and it's good because it's good for something else but actually it's good for itself it's got intrinsic value in each of the art forms whether you're calling it art or craft or design or music or film yeah. or theatre is is good in itself and I suppose that's where I'm frustrated with the education system that it's become marketized and performance-led so I, I think that, you know, this, just to finish, that the other problem is that there is a big chasm between school arts and contemporary art practice. And I think that is something that really needs addressing. I think you, uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it just doesn't seem like they get what art's supposed to be about. It's as simple as that, isn't it? I mean, that that's how it's read to me. And that it seems a complete anathema to the language, the dialogue, the empathy, the creativity, the communication, the connections that all come out of creating and acting and making art, if you want to, and, and to summarize it. And, and it is it is extraordinary. I, I, so um, I'd love to uh, ask 
both you and also Annie are, are particularly about coming on to those um, uh, new ways. I don't know whether this is taking us into new territory, um, but the T-level exams, which are uh, set up, I, I think are, are, are designed to at least steer people in a more conclusive direction. I'm, I'm not sure because at the moment I just I don't think it, I don't think beyond reception there's any legal requirement to teach art to anybody is there? Am I right about that? So so art on in the national curriculum is 5 to 14 um, but I think the there is a, a kind of a clause that says you don't have to teach particular materials it just gives a very broad overview yeah. So, for instance, it's to produce creative work, to become proficient in drawing, painting, sculpture and other art, craft and design techniques, um, to know about great artists. Well, I, that's contentious for me um, because, you know, mm. children are great artists. Um, yeah. But I think what, what and Catherine and I were talking about was, you know, it does say, for instance, it's not... Um, mandatory to use pencil charcoal paint clay etc that's that's the kind of issue so i think that's why i've devoted my career to also teacher education as well as you know teacher training so that students who are coming into that environment can understand not only the power of the arts that they can be transformational but also to really um carefully structure the not in a prescriptive way but in an invitational way to get involved in the different processes so that the students themselves are developing a repertoire um, of expertise and um, deeper understanding so that they can work alongside the children young people as a role model in that mm. rather than telling them what to do i think i love peter duncan and blue peter but yeah. uh, i don't really like his when i made earlier yeah and and, and also that predetermined outcome where your talk towards a, a known destination. But Steve, would you, can I ask Annie just to think, could, we, could you take us a little further on that inquiry, just thinking about it from these, these new exams and new levels of education that are okay. coming forward? Does that correlate at all with, with how Penny's thinking or does it take us in a different direction? Um, kind of, it takes us on a different direction. So briefly, um, if, if uh, those in the audience haven't stumbled across these quite yet, um, T-levels, which stand for technical levels, are post-GCSE vocational classroom-based qualifications. So the T-level programme um, is at A-level standard, and one T-level is equivalent to three A-levels. And these T-levels are being rolled out um, across um, different domains of, of economy and society. So there are T-levels in law and accountancy and ones in um, nursing and social care um, and so on. Um, there's over 20 of them or there will be eventually. Um, I've been working with a group of um, around 15 expert practitioners from craft fields to develop the, the, the content. And I can tell you it's more than um, those two pages that you just waved, Penny, for the national curriculum. So to um, develop the content for the T-level in craft and design. So this will be for you know essentially 16 to 19 year olds. Um, there are four pathways, uh, one's in jewelry and metalsmithing, one's in textiles and fashion, one's in ceramic, um, and the other is in furniture and upholstery. 
compulsory and so um, students will learn their skills in the classroom and then there will be a work-based placement and that what's distinctive about this is it has been designed by practitioners rather than by educationalists mm. um, and I think it will be transformational for students at at that level because it's about a creative practical education rather than um rather than book learning if you like yeah, um that's so yeah that. yeah really uh interesting that way of sort of imparting information um on you know from a practitioner point of view to sort of you know show demonstrate powerful skill in terms of dissemination information rather than theory led and interesting that's picking up from that post 15 to 14 period where uh, Penny was, was, was focusing. And also um, that it's just, you know, that it's lens is slightly different. It's onto a practical application that may have use and also employment engage with it rather than notionally, and perhaps as a good thing, you know, entering into the kind of contemporary art world such as that might exist. Um, Stephen, it seems a really appropriate time just to ask your thoughts on this this area as well. Um, I think you know the, the the basic question about have have students changed over the over the decades? Um, I, guess, I guess I've seen them through a lot of decades. So <laughs> um, I, I think there's some very some very fundamental things. I mean, looking at uh, my my own son as a as a case study, I suppose. Um, unlike me who I kind of grew up spending all my leisure time making things you know beginning wow. with airfix kits and plasticine and you know and then uh, moving into sculpture um, you know B Billy's Billy's early years were made um, learning the digital and and playing computer games um, and so he's he's a very digitally savvy designer mm. uh, as opposed to somebody who's a very um, hands-on, give me a bag of clay, kind of a kind of a maker, mm. um, and I, you know, again, I don't think you know one thing's right and one thing's wrong. Um, that's 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 how these generations have grown up. But there's still yeah. there's still lots of students who are interested in the stuff, in the materiality of making things, um, and in the the kind of tactileness of making things. I, I would like to agree with. Penny particularly about um, about the national curriculum and and particularly from a ceramics perspective how it's kind of I guess let us down at higher education level um, we you know it's it's difficult to to recruit students to a subject that they don't know because they haven't experienced in their life until they're making their university choices. Uh, so subjects like ceramics and glass, you know, very, very difficult for students to know that they'd be interested in that uh, unless they've done a really good foundation course where they where they might experience that. So things like the um, the, the T level um, initiative sounds really interesting to kind of begin to bridge some of those gaps. The Craft Council did a fantastic um, program a few years ago called Firing Up, where, where they funded um, schools to, to bring ceramics back into the classroom where they'd had it before. So if, if they didn't have a kiln, they would help them get a kiln. If they have had a kiln, they'd help them get it fixed up uh, and give them um, 
other other support in terms of teaching ceramics mm -hmm. and that ran for a few years and was very very successful but it i guess it shouldn't be for the craft council to do that no it's interesting you say how many people are voting in i suppose is there a question here that sort of health and safety has sort of put its put its boot onto uh these practices um and there are less kilns in in schools as a result of that or um to an extent we're, we're far more um health and safety conscious than we used to be for probably very good reasons uh and expense too um you know even even at um university level a, a ceramic studio is an is an expensive resource to equip yeah. uh, compared to other subjects that are you know much much less material and equipment heavy yeah i've heard that said as well it's as you say and you can fit much many more desks with a with a computer on it uh then you can you know one kiln and, and a bunch of various for people to work on wheels um absolutely yeah. um so an interesting area there and and very live it seems to me and, and i hope everybody who's listening can get a sense if you like of both the sort of fundamental wrongheadedness which i'm not going to put into pennies words but you know i think if you if you can understand them uh the way they were suggested they're very powerful uh observations um and also that interesting tracking that um annie was mentioning there as well something that offers something of a future um as well to potential makers and as steve was saying bringing that further down the the age uh ladder um so you can get people having hands on which has got to be the right way around it so um this is a uh, uh no no I, I will track on I, I know you'd like to say more and catherine I, it's an area which you you have um uh championed as well from from our side um particularly and i and um uh, i know you were particularly keen on on um this next element i wonder if you wanted to introduce this, like, this fourth question which i think was allied with phones but also with um uh, mental health as well well it was actually just quickly about mobile phone impact the impact of that when when they were introduced 15 years ago or perhaps it was less than that uh whether you noticed I suppose this is mainly a question for Stephen and Penny, whether there was a big drop off in the interest in making it that as a result. I mean, I'll just come in briefly. I mean, I, I think I think Steve used the did you use the word hybrid? <laughs> Somebody did. Yeah. But, I, but I think yeah. it is both. I don't think one has taken over the other. I think it's both. And I think that that's what I've witnessed that um I mean I, you know, I also have a 20-year-old who's come through that age and and she's very, um, she's very uh, haptic, you know, she's very interested in the kind of sensorial making, doing. Um, in fact, I was delighted that in her lockdown at her, you know, in her university halls, she set up her own kind of mini art club uh, and they're using materials. And, you know, I get texts saying, please can I have some more acrylic paints, which I'm delighted. <laughs> but I think she's also very very um, versatile in using Instagram and curating her own kind of space so I think I think if they're used well I think phones are um, they're they're complementary to our lifestyles I think it's only when they become the sole use that it becomes damaging and then you know can be um, have a negative effect on a young person's development yeah. I don't know Steve what do you think yeah, I, I, I think so. I, I mean, I suppose what, what does worry me a little is the, 
you know, the way that everything can come through your phone. So, and and a lot of the information that comes through your, your phone is is broad but not very deep. So there's a kind of superficial overview of things rather than a than a very kind of in in depth looking at subjects and issues. And you know, I guess you know. The rise and fall of Trump is kind of, you know, a, a part of the, of that dominance of of that kind of superficial media. Yeah. So um, definitely. Yeah. So it has, it, as you, as you say, it's it's a uh, it's a tool for good or evil. I guess the question is the content in which you're driving on onto it. Annie, do you see that in the same way as well, or, or do you have to add to that? Um. Yeah, I think. I think it's interesting because we've seen um, on the one hand, obviously, we, we are all living our lives much more, more digitally and through our phones. But on the other hand, we've seen this extraordinary resurgence in making it of all kinds, you know, from a, just having a go and sharing and, you know, making a Harry Styles jumper or whatever um, to, you know, the, 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 the appreciation of the finest level of, 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 of craft as art, as sculpture. So um, I think it's, it's really difficult. And to Steve's point about um, breadth rather than depth, um, it feels like it's, this is such a nuanced question, the relationship between um, mobile, mobile technology and the, what's been happening in craft over the last 15 years. Um, they're utterly intertwined and there are contradictions there and I don't feel really equipped to give, give an answer on it because it's so, so in depth. Um, and if I were to give a, an answer, it would be at that superficial no, level. I, I think you're, as you say, it's a different thing. I think the one thing for me is, is, the, is, the, is the camera because suddenly you're sharing a world. And I think that's what's extraordinary that you can look at someone else, you can share with someone else. That Instagram platform is phenomenal. You know, private makers, public makers, connections, communities all form. Um, and, and as you say, swim in this relatively immediate and, and, and attractive world. But for me, it's that camera, it's the digital thing of being able to kind of take an image and share it. It seems to me to be just phenomenal. Uh, and the fact that we can do that as we're going around, as we see things is, 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 is there. And I, I think you're right to itemize the um, shallowness of immediacy, which is the danger that sits alongside it. And and the wider manipulation, which Ms. Steve is rightly talking about in terms of politics as well. But it does lead very well onto this interesting question um, where I'm fascinated how, how or even why uh, art or making should have some sort of lien over mental health. Um, and I wondered whether uh, we could approach this question. Stephen, I think as you know, to you first, as a as a physical maker yourself, is there a relationship between mental health, well-being, and making uh, the process of making, in your view? Absolutely, yes. Mm -hmm. I know. Um, I think the, the the question was posed um, about students. I, I don't think I can particularly um, speak for students in that regard, but speaking speaking for myself. Mm -hmm. um, any any time I'm stressed or I have 
too much university stuff or I've been looking at the screen for eight hours nonstop. The, the answer is to go to the studio and make something and do something. And, you know, it's just marvelous for state of mind, well-being. Um, that kind of tension flows away. Goes away. So, um, yeah, yeah. First-hand experience, absolutely, yes, yeah. to that yeah. question. It, is there empirical evidence, um, Annie, that, that can point us in this direction? There totally is, and I would refer everyone to, um, th there's all sorts of empirical evidence in terms of um, the neuroscience of making, and I, I'm, you know, to give my <laughs> second mm. caveat, I don't want to talk superficially about either neuroscience or psychology, but I would direct everyone to uh, Dr. Kathy Treadaway's work. Um, mm -hmm. Kathy is at the Cardiff School of Art and Design um, and she's researching this area so deeply, in particular in relation to um, advanced dementia and people dealing with post-stroke impairment. Um, and she's researching how playful, calming objects can um, transform the lives of people um, dealing with those conditions. So um, that's just one example. There are many, many researchers working in this area of um, haptics and mental health, but um, Kathy is one of, well, at the forefront of that research. And um, interesting, fascinating. I'd love to dig into, into that. And Penny, how, how, does, how does that um, stack up from, from your, your point of view? Well, I think it's interesting, isn't it? Because um, I've witnessed um, some terrible statistics in our local area with um, children, young people uh, really struggling with lockdown, you know, in terms of not only loss, bereavement, anxiety, um, suicidal ideation, um, feelings of being trapped. But actually some of the arts projects like the show and tell exhibition actually which is a great mm. example which has really allowed the young people to not only connect but share their own context um so i think there there is kind of hope and and there is a, a rainbow or silver lining but but i do think art has allowed children and young people to to make those connections i mean it's an interesting study um by daisy fancourt that i was talking to Catherine about that she studied um, a group of seven and a half thousand seven-year-olds um, who were socially and behaviorally inverted commas stable at baseline and by engaging them with arts activities over the period of time till they were 11 they had much more stability and much more um, adjustment if you like you know self-regulation um, so I think it's really important that the arts do invite that. I mean, I have I've purposely employed um, an art psychotherapist, um, Helen Jury, who's been working with my students to look at the, their well-being as well, because they're then working with children and young people. So if our students are well and resilient and can cope with their own mental health, then they're working with children who then they can hold that space carefully. And I think that's really important. And, and just to finish on one fantastic example, I've, I've been so overwhelmed with um, in terms of joy in the face of the pandemic. Um, last year, last May, 
I can't believe it's a year. Richard Wentworth said it's an anniversary this week. I said, an anniversary of what? He said COVID, of course. So anyway, um, the idea that we got a little bit of Arts Council emergency funds um, and we, together with Bath Cultural Education Partnership, we devoted 10% of our funds to work with the families most impacted by COVID. And we co-designed these beautiful adventure boxes. They're beautifully crafted, they're aesthetic, they're digital and analogue. So we've attended to the families that have are in that kind of digital divide of have experiencing digital poverty and um, not only are we working with the gatekeepers of the families whether that's a head teacher or in Bath it's the charity mentoring plus that work with the families um, or, or the young people at risk but these are invitations to really explore your creativity and they've just been ingenious. And in fact, our local tech innovators, rocket makers, have given us pro bono support in that process, which, and, uh, and witnessing that from both my, so I'm director of a charity, House of Imagination, but also work at the university. And the university has also worked in service to the community by giving us a digital intern. It's been fantastic. And that aligned with, you know, our students textile students making PPE equipment, our halls of residence being given over to families. I mean, it, it's all part of this creative ecology. So that, in a way, out of a tragedy has come some real hope and optimism. I think you're, you're, you're expressing it very well. It, it's fascinating, isn't it? And, and it seems to me to be a much truer cause to kind of what art is there to do uh, for us as a community. One of the reasons that we came out of London, set this space up, you know, have, have programmed the way, the way we have. Um, and ceramics is always funny enough, been at the core of this uh, somehow, I suppose, because it's the oldest, most direct material to kind of work with, but it, it's applicable across all art forms. But it is a very real question about what exactly we're trying to get out of art uh, as a community. Um, and I, I really do think that's shifting. I'm fascinated. Uh, to hear about these projects, and I, I, I would imagine what you would, you, why would you say otherwise? But I, that they've been really well taken up, and frankly, really needed um, at this time, particularly in countering isolation. I can see how that would be um, such a such a strong response. Absolutely. Um, to add, Johnny, that um, we are we have employed as part of the digital interns' role. She is evaluating the whole process. So she's witnessing how the families are engaging and she's collating all of that information because at the next point we want to kind of invite the next iteration of those boxes so they can be widened out to the whole community. Yeah, this is the sort of research I think, you know, fed into um, the wider psyche, um, definitely, uh, and ultimately into, you know, decision makers when it comes to things like education, I'm sure it's going to have profound effects on just shifting the balance about you know what art is is there to do for us and what a wonderful world we you know, could potentially be living in when we've got this sort of uh, activity going on and really getting nourishment uh, out of it. Uh, as you say at the moment, it's a fairly shriveled version of what it could be. So it's it's really it's fascinating, um, inspiring to hear that. Thank you. Um, so. Um, Conscious that we, we, we um, I've just put a segue into here together um, to where we want to look to next, which is um, 
maintaining our focus on 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 um, uh, young uh, makers, young creators, um, is to to look at what type of works, what kind of works uh, are they making now, and are there any trends that you can um, identify? And um, Annie, I, I I wondered if being the CEO of Cockpit and an incredible uh, entourage, over 150 creative makers. Are there any directions that they're going that you have seen? Um, um, it's super broad. Um, as I said earlier, we, we've had a record number of applications to join Cockpit this year. We've had mm. um, 196, so just under 200 applications. And um, in terms of trends, uh, aesthetically, none. <laughs> you know, it's so broad, it's so eclectic, um, which is really exciting. That's uh, it's really vibrant. But I would say that there are thematic trends, um, and those are um, number one of sustainability. That um, everyone who's applying to us, and many many of those who are already practicing within cockpit are um, their awareness and consciousness and commitment to sustainability and I'm talking about ecological sustainability in their practice um, is leaping forward. So sustainability, um, exploring questions of identity of who you are as a person and how uh, and how you fit and all the different identities that make you the maker that you are that that again is coming through um, loud and clear related to that um, an ever deepening connection to a sense of place a place in the world um, and certainly during lockdown of course we've all become so much more familiar with our, our local areas um, and really slowed down to get that deep appreciation of, of place. And we've seen that coming through with people's work and then possibly a little bit more lightheartedly in a sense. But the other trend I've seen is um, a much greater use of colour. Um, mm. So that's that's one of the things that's coming through, um, especially in ceramics, but actually in all practices where we've had um, many years of a, a very pared back, uh, subtle palette. Now I'm starting to see an explosion of colour. That's a brilliantly uh, interesting. Um, we can touch on that and I won't say any further, but ask Stephen the same question. Uh, yeah, I'd, I'd agree with, um, with Annie. Sustainability, I think, is very much um, at the fore of students' minds these days. Um, yeah. I actually wrote a list of, of um, my current and, and past um, PhD students to, to see what the connections were, and there are absolutely yeah. none at all. They're all completely different. <laughs> <laughs> but then I realised what, what, what is the connection is that they're all... Um, they're all kind of breaking out of their subject silos. So all of them are working across disciplines and subject areas. So I've, I've um, had a student who was working around textiles and filmmaking and bringing the histories and materiality of those, those two disciplines together. Um, so I, th I think that's kind of a different zeitgeist to how it used to be. You know, it used to be if you were a painter, you were a painter. And, I had a really a, quite a big struggle in my career changing from a, being a fine artist to a ceramicist 
that was it. that was a kind of you know going mm. from from one camp to another which wasn't that easy um probably easier probably easier than going back the other way sometimes in the past um but i think that's much more um much more accepted much more open students yeah. are much more engaged with that these days um we we do um a unit um, at Manchester School of Art called Unit X, which is a short unit where students come out of their subject areas and work together on projects with students from other disciplines, usually on projects that are brought in by um, external professionals who, who sent the brief. Mm. So it's an opportunity for them quite quite early in their, in their um, university careers to, to kind of engage outside of their, their subject. Uh, and that's that's always been very well received, actually. So I, I get I guess that's the 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 clearest trend that I that I've noticed. You know, people being kind of more open to to working across disciplines. It's interesting, isn't it? I um, yeah, I'd love to touch on that. And and Penny, do you do you add add to those thoughts so far? Sustainability, um, lateral thinking through different genre. Uh, Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I ran a project with um, Andrew Grant, who's the designer mm. of Gardens by the Bay in Singapore, um, called the Forest of Imagination, and that's in its seventh year now, amazingly. Um, but we won't. It's a forever project. Um, but yes, that's in. That's definitely in response to the ecological emergency and finding solutions for climate change, and that involves our local schools so at least 20 schools a year are involved and our students at the university but also the the creative ecology of the city the the local creative industries that are working alongside us and interestingly Anna you said you know around the sense of kind of identity and I think that notion of placemaking and creative placemaking um, but also I that sense of belonging, I, I think, especially with COVID, it's it's separated us so much. Um, and what my students were talking about <clears throat> this week were was the importance of real life projects. So the film students are making a film for the forest imagination with the local community on the notion of how the city could become a, a landscape city. Um, and they're also reimagining possibilities. So as Steve said, that kind of crushing of disciplines of transdisciplinarity. I've just come from a seminar with um, Marila Nudeka um, and colleagues, and I was struck by the kind of immersion in different disciplines, and it was genuinely transdisciplinary practice, but creativity and imagination and ingenuity were right at the heart of everything. So yes, I, I, think, it, I think there are new trends, That's, which is a good thing. That's I think it is. I think it's a great thing. Absolutely right. Um, and it's almost like a sort of micro exploration, isn't it? Sort of fingers of ideas going out and sort of surveying territory uh, and sort of feeding back towards their compatriots um, about ideas and uh, sustainability. I think you know uh, and identity kind of merge into the same thing. Sometimes I think really because you kind of almost now can't have an identity without having a conscious awareness of your both your locale in terms of where you are and also your responsibilities um, and part of the environment that you live in and so it's quite interesting and then that idea of 
lateral thinking. I love that. Gosh, well, you you summarized it be beautifully there. Um, insights that I've, I've I've not seen. So thank you very much, um, all three of you, for those um, thoughts. Um, um, gosh, they don't get any easier. These questions. I've got to answer. I mean, and also thank you for taking the time to really kind of put those uh, answers together. They were. Uh, I, I know that that's that's taken considered thought well in advance to. To, to bring us those insights. So thank you, they're not casual observations. Um, this one um, is designed to, uh, I think in cricketing terms, this is what would be called a googly. Um, <laughs> and um, so uh, who in your opinion was the most visionary individual of yesteryear? Um, and who is the most promising rising star? Gosh. Um, I've always tempted Catherine to put you into bat first for asking this tricky question. <laughs> um, Stephen, are, are you able to say in in your role? Uh... Yeah, I've I've sort of answered this question, I think, um, but not just with single individuals, and and I've taken a bit of a sort of personal um, line on it. Um, so my. One of my earliest hero um, from my, I guess, fine art school days um, was Robert Rauschenberg mm -hmm. and that approach to, um, to, to visual narrative, which is something that, that's never left me, really. That kind of layering of images to tell a story um, was one of my earliest inspirations. Yeah. Um, and then I've kind of paired him up with Eduardo Paolozzi, who was my tutor at the RCA, mm. um, strangely in the ceramic department, but a kind of enormous personality and hugely influential. Um, master of collage himself, of course, and a fantastic printer. Uh, and he had this, this great thing about an, an artist must have an alphabet. You must have an alphabet of of images, of the things that you deal with. And if you construct that alphabet, then you can make anything out of it, uh, which again is something that's always um, always stayed with me. Um, and then Rising Star, this, it's kind of not, not right, but I guess the other contemporary artist I'm absolutely um, knocked over by is Ai Weiwei, not a rising star, obviously, you're absolutely um, established preeminent, uh, but things like his, um, his Sichuan earthquake piece, um, just full of materiality, full of um, political narrative, mm. uh, full of political and social comment, uh, just extraordinary, extraordinary artworks, really. Yeah. Um, but I have, I have pulled out a rising star from my own territory. Um, not an absolute youngster, but younger than me. <laughs> uh, and that's Phoebe Cummings, who makes uh, the most fantastic, um, I can't call them ceramic because they're very rarely fired, but beautiful, beautiful clay installations um, are very transient things. So they're, they're kind of made on site. Um, they're incredibly delicate and beautiful. And then they, they can't be, taken away they they're just there as they're there and um i did i did a, a residency at, at the vna a few years ago um in the ceramic studio there and phoebe cummings was the artist that followed me into the residency 
and she used all my leftover bags of clay that were full of all the the, um, the failures and things and just made this extraordinary installation in, in, the, in the space. And then when she left it, it had to be taken down and destroyed. So it's, it's about the, the skill of that, the beauty, the transience. And I, I guess there's sort of question, questioning of, of the notion of craft and art and ownership. You know, you, you can never own one of these things, which is kind of beautiful irony. It is it a beautiful irony. Uh, and I, I hope it's not the sort of residual gallerist in me, just <laughs> very difficult when that happens. Only because I, I've always had a sort of, you know, very antithetical approach. I just don't like, I, I don't like destruction. I don't like, I just, it fills me with sadness. Um, and so kind of to sort of feel that there's a moment that has to come um, probably a bit like kind of when a party has to come to an end, you know, you just, you just are filled with a certain priest. So it's sort of, that's how, it, that's the only yeah, bit yeah. about her work I find <laughs> problematic. It probably isn't. Yeah. Yeah. Um, gosh. Um, so, sorry, I didn't really direct, the question, then, 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 Yeah, brilliantly. Uh, uh, thank you very, very much. Um, and uh, Petty, do you, do you have individuals in, in, in your mind as well or, or um, uh, genres. How, how, well, do you, how do you <laughs> Yes, you have to forgive me because I'm going to choose uh, kind of my educational art heroes because Very I think to put this in That's context. So clearly, I'm going to say that Joseph Boyce. I mean, I was lucky to work at Tate Modern before it opened on the learning policy, and I I always used to end up in the Joseph Boyce gallery. But yeah. you know, his phrases around everyone as an artist, every classroom is an artwork, and that really is very. You know, I love the notion of democratizing art. However, still keeping that sense of quality and aesthetic. But a, a recent hero I mentioned, obviously, is Ken Robinson. Not that he was necessarily um, um, an artist in the contemporary art world, but he, what he did for the country was to really put creativity, imagination um, and purpose on the map. And his quote around, you know, he says, children, young people flourish when the culture is right. And I think that's what we're missing at the moment. We haven't got that kind of culture to support children and young people in their making, in their thinking through making, because they do have boundless potential, but they're not respected in that. And I suppose my hero is in the same vein of art education. Then, you know, I am a big fan of Bob and Roberta Smith, I have to say, because, you know, he is, we are, he is. And I, he's just written a book, hasn't he? I'm an artist, just writing a children's book, actually. Um, he spoke a couple of years ago now at the Forest of Imagination and really um, excited the young people. And, you know, and also for the same reason, I, I'm a fan of Jeremy Deller and Assemble and people like that, because they really do work alongside the community and elicit ideas with and for the community. They don't do things to, they're, they're part of. So they're my heroes. They're great heroes. And I think you included one of your slides on there and that you asked me for a short pick and that was gonna be one of mine for you. I'll try and share it at the end with, with everybody here. Um, and brilliant, thank you, thank you very much. And Annie. Do you go? Do you uh, do you represent, or, or how do you how do you see the, the your movement? What are you moving? So, with? so this is um, if you haven't come across this object before, this is the Breuter boat. Um, it's 
an extraordinary, um, actually heart-stopping object. I remember when I first saw it, it's in the, um, it's from the Breiter Hoard, which was discovered um, on the banks of Loch Foyle. Um, it's now in the National Gallery of Ireland with the rest of the objects found um, in that extraordinary treasure trove. But, but this, to me, is the iconic object. Um, of course, for its craftsmanship, but it's it's this luminous treasure, this uh, the delicacy of it um, and the humanity of it and the tenderness of it um, are to me absolutely captivating. Um, but also I, I chose it partly because of that, because it, it's, it's an object that has stayed with me since I first saw it when I was 20. Um, we don't know the name of, of the maker, um, but I also I chose it because as a boat, it's this fitting symbol for, for this moment when we're thinking, how are we going to navigate through these next choppy waters? Um, we need, we need a, a, a safe and tender vessel to take us through into our unknown future. So that's, that's my um, luminary from the past. Um, and if we go to the next slide, please, Johnny. Um, this is my rising star. Uh, this, if you, uh, if you haven't come across her yet, um, this is a, a piece of work by um, the extraordinary metalsmith, jeweler and visual artist, Roxanne Simone. She graduated last year from jewelry and metalsmithing at the Royal College of Art. Um, she makes vessels, she makes objects, jewellery, and um, as in this piece, which is called Malaika, she makes digital collages. She um, is fascinated with patination in metal. She makes also hydroformed objects. And her investigation, we were talking about identity earlier, and her investigation is a reimagining of diasporic identities and gender. Um, I would say keep an eye out for her. She's an extraordinary talent. She's got exhibitions coming up uh, this year at Gallery SO on Brick Lane in London um, and at the um, Design and Crafts Council of Ireland in Kilkenny in an exhibition curated by Colin O'Dougal called What Colour is Metal? Uh, I recommend it. So that's my rising star. Brilliant. And a great title. Uh... For a show as well, I like that very much indeed. Um, good question to finish on. Um, are you optimistic about the future of art and ed, uh, the future of art? Ed well, I suppose it's kind of got two edges. It's a good question, this Catherine. Uh, are you are you optimistic about the future of art education in the UK? Um, so, Annie, how do you feel about that? Uh, I'm not optimistic, but I am hopeful. Uh, so just to <laughs> say why, um, if I think about optimism or pessimism, I think of that as either a naive um, thought that everything's going to be fine or a naive thought that everything's going to be awful. Um, but actually hope is about agency. And um, hope, if we think about making, making is all about agency. It's about how we transform something through our own creative and practical imagination. And so I have great hope for the future because the future is in our hands. Mm. Brilliant. And Stephen? Uh, yes, uh, well, yeah, with Annie's proviso about <laughs> optimism, but I, I am optimistic. Um, I think there are, there are big problems, and, and we've touched on a number of them this evening. Um, 
you know, the, the way that um, making a handmade is kind of undervalued and rather low status uh, within, within education and society. Um, the low priority of art in schools we've talked about. I think this current generation has, has undoubtedly been hit by COVID and everything that's happened in the last year or so. Uh, but I am optimistic. I mean, regardless of, of everything, we always have fantastic students coming through. You know, there's always some come through and really surprise you and really shine out. Um, you know, so um, and um, and only this week, um, the RCA was ranked the world's number one university for art and design again. So, you know, there, there are great things there. And let's be optimistic. I, it's so interesting that you said it, but I, I thought, gosh, you know, kind of like the elephant in the room here is the RCA really, isn't it? Because it's done so much consistently to teach great art and, and also to foster that environment um, of people who've not only become artists, but also become educators within it as well, um, within the art structure. Um, but Penny, I think, I think you're touching on something slightly more or more, you know, uh, slightly differently. As well in your in your thoughts and processes. So, how do you feel about um, the future of art education? Well, um, I think it's absolutely urgent. Um, I think that it's never been this bad, and so there is hope. Yes, Annie, for you know, we need hope and imagination. I think what we've witnessed is creativity in a crisis, and we have responded to that crisis with ingenious ways of um, ingenious solutions but I think now it's time to reimagine education um, for a creative future for everyone we need to move away from a silo siloed based subject based approach that um, so that we can invite every young person every child and young person to follow a creative pathway and if they choose then to take art or craft or design or any of the arts into you know college or higher education then they need to have that option so the good news is that there is I'm part of an a, a cross-party political group in art craft and design education so there have been recent discussions in the House of Commons and the House of Lords about a new cultural education plan that aligns with the Arts Council strategies um, let's create strategy and the new creativity exchange that's come out of the Durham Commission as well. So, so yes, I am hopeful. Catherine, you, you feel very passionate about this. In fact, you're, you're um, here. Do you, how, you're, how do you feel about education and Catherine? I'm, in, glad, uh, I'm, glad I'm glad something seems to be being done about it by all of you. So thank you so much um, for, yeah, yeah. for just making the change then absolutely necessary change as you say it seems to art seems to become regarded by the government as a sort of hobby or um you know not a fundamental almost human right and i think it is and these children are not being given the opportunity to even do it i, I think you're absolutely right isn't it and then here we have these incredible programs going through uh, so it's great to see and great to hear about those as well um Thank you, all four of you, actually, Catherine, I'm including you in this one because of the time you put into uh, ring, ma ring mastering us all into uh, attentive detail um, and putting me into the uh, um, uh, um, jump seat of, of, of actually being in a very lucky place of um, 
hosting and, 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 and enjoying the conversation uh, with all three of you. So, so thank you very much. It's a really profound and fascinating area and, and one that we're going to carry on as a topic through. Um, and it's so interesting because it's all evolved out of our interests in sustainability and the environment. And it seems to me that more than ever, the art of making, the process of making, the act of making um, has more agency, to use that word that you, you, you were describing, uh, to do with that process than ever before. And I think that's uh, you know, going to be hugely valuable to us all as we dig ourselves out of this terrible hole we've all found ourselves in. <laughs> um, and we will through creativity. Um, so thank you all very much.